You know, it's possible to say all the right things, read the right books, go to the right services, go through all of the motions, and yet still not know the Savior. And that's why we're here this morning. My hope is that this morning we will get a glimpse of who our Savior is, that we will see Him as matchlessly sovereign, as incredibly merciful, and as we do, that our hearts will melt and that inside of us will build a compassion that resembles that of Christ. Would you turn with me to the book of Luke this morning? We are going to be looking at chapter 19, Luke 19, and then starting with verse 28. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Again, that's Luke 19, 28. And it says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already On the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. There was a fog that was present there. It was was dense. And it wasn't the the low cloud kind of fog, the the water vapor kind of cloud. It was the it was the wishful thinking kind of cloud. It was the focus clouding kind of cloud. It was the it was the heart tugging, 
fog that just set people's expectations in such a way that they missed out on something very, very important. There were thousands and thousands of people there. Matthew's gospel tells us there were multitudes. One commentator estimates there were several hundred thousand of clamoring, road-filling, densely packed people on their way to the holy city. In their, mount, their minds, they were clouded with thoughts of, of the celebration ahead. And yet that was overshadowed by the, the looming oppression that they also felt with the current political situation. The occasion was Passover. It was the Jewish festival that brought people from anywhere and everywhere together in the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of commemorating God's deliverance from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. God's tenth and final blow to Egypt was one that would bring death to the firstborn child of every family in the land. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 5, it says, From the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But you know, as wide-sweeping as this night-born terror would be, Israel was promised that they would be the exception. This wouldn't touch them. The only requirement was that each household, on the tenth day of the first month of the year, they would separate out from their herd a spotless lamb. And then on the fourteenth day of the month, they were to kill it and take its blood and spread it over the doorposts of their house. And God said in Exodus 11.13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So as long as the blood was present, they were safe. Safe in their homes. And this was a really, really big deal. This was the single greatest, most epic event in Israel's history where God miraculously he steps in to time and space and he declares war on the most powerful kingdom on earth and he delivers a people who had been oppressed from slavery to freedom and here in Luke 19 as these people they're on their way to celebrate this event they're they're on their way to celebrate Passover they back and their thoughts must have been catapulted catapulted forward to dream about one day when God would do something similar for them if they weren't saying it I'm sure there were some thinking it isn't it going to be amazing isn't it going to just be amazing when God sends that king to deliver us like when he did to deliver through Moses back in Egypt. The parallels were, were just unmistakable. You couldn't go anywhere without being very aware of the Roman oppressors. I mean, you'd look at the monumental architectural wonders there that were tributes to Rome's greatness. To every, everywhere you went, you saw military force 
Rome was absolutely present there. You'd look on a coin and you'd see the face of the one who was the boss. And you were reminded every time tax time came, those coins have to go right back to where they came from. You were reminded, this is not a free Israel. What a great day it's going to be when God delivers us just like he delivered us from Egypt. Maybe some had fresh in their minds Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, here's what they're going to say, As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Maybe some people had verses 7 and 8 just rolling around in their heads over and over again thinking, someday, someday God's going to deliver us. And it's going to make what happened back in Moses' day just seem like nothing in comparison. But the question is, when? How? How long do we have to wait? Is it coming soon? Are we close? How long do we have to put up with this stuff that we're putting up with now? Have you been there? Have you been there? Tired of waiting? tired of wondering, praying over and over again that God would bring you through this difficult season maybe you find yourself in now. Maybe you come to church week after week, year after year, thinking maybe this will be the week. Maybe this will be the year. Maybe it's 2019. I hope so. Today marks the beginning of Holy Week. It's the time that we draw special attention to celebrate this great work that Christ came to accomplish here for us. And yet I wonder, I wonder if there are concerns that are weighing very heavily on our hearts. Things that are dragging us down and clouding our thinking. That put us in a kind of virtual fog, depleting our joy. The fog here, it was dense. Thousands and thousands of people, they're on their way to celebrate God's deliverance. Yet at the same time, they're looking forward to a great day of deliverance. Then the moment comes. The moment comes when amongst the crowd there begins to stir some commotion around a man who's riding a colt. The commotion turns into shouting, and the shouting turns into singing, and suddenly people are shedding off their cloaks. They're laying them on the road in front of this man. According to Matthew's Gospel, they're tearing branches off of the roadside palms. They're laying these down on the road as well. A chant begins to materialize. And then, almost with one voice, the masses repeat, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. 
glory in the highest. But what king are we talking about? What peace is coming? What kind of king rides into town on a donkey? And what kind of peace can there be if there's no army following this guy? Where are the flags? Where are the banners? Where's the pomp and circumstance? Where are the soldiers? Where are the swords that will deal that death blow to this, these oppressors? Who is this man on the donkey? It was clear that some thought he was actually a king. Matthew's gospel says people were walking in front of him and behind him. They were shouting, Hosanna. That means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, they may not have realized it at the time, but their shouts were right on. They were dead on. This was the promised son of David. This one was the one who had been prophesied so many times, so many years before. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the anointed one from the line of David who is going to bring salvation and deliverance. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah wrote about. Isaiah 62.10, Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This is the one whom the prophet Zechariah wrote of in chapter 9. Rejoice Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's a connection. There's a very clear connection, isn't there? And surely there were some in the crowd who made that connection. The Savior would come. This is the way he would come. Maybe this is him. But before we begin to assume that all of that was clear in their minds, we need to step back and we need to consider this pervasive fog that existed that ruled the day. In Matthew 21.10, we're told that as soon as Jesus entered the city, the whole city was stirred up. And what were they saying now? They were saying, who is this? You notice they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. They were saying, save us now, as he's riding in. But when he got in, all of a sudden, the question is, who is this? The frenzy subsides. All of a sudden, the crowd isn't so sure who this guy is. The prevailing answer was, in Matthew 21, 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In other words, they're saying, well... We're not exactly sure who he is. We know he's some type of a prophet, and we know that he comes from Nazareth. Of that, at least, we're certain. And then they go from jubilantly shouting praises and letting a donkey trample their coats, and now they're just in, in this uncertainty. Maybe in a matter of hours, maybe it was a matter of minutes, I don't know. But it doesn't stop there. From there, we see the slippery slope 
just go to a sheer drop-off. And all of a sudden, the frenzied cries of the people, they transform from Hosanna, son of David, to crucify him. Very quickly, we see things change. Just as soon as the euphoria clears, they were absolutely convinced, now not so certain, now, because he was falsely leading them to believe something, believe something about himself that they now think is not true, well, he needs to go, and he needs to die. What happened here? Was this some type of failure to launch? Did Jesus plan? He, he planned to come save these people, and then as he got into Jerusalem, everything just fell apart? This was supposed to be a triumphal entry, right? That's what I read here in my ESV translation. It says the triumphal entry. It doesn't seem so triumphant. And what we read in Luke 19.41 doesn't sound like the response of a king. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, what did he do? Did he raise his arms like Rocky Balboa and said, I am here. It is time. Let's do this. No. It says he wept. He wept over it. This looks a lot more like the beginning of a tragedy than a moment of triumph, doesn't it? It looks more like Jesus is coming to the grips with the reality of his failure. Was Jesus crying because he just wanted to help these people, but now he's beginning to see that they were going to resist him, to defy him? Was Jesus grieved because this wonderful plan that he had to deliver these people, it was now looking like it was going to fail? Was he like some sort of politician who was so excited as the people were going to the polls, but as the numbers started coming in, it became apparent very, very quickly, ah, this is not going in my favor. We had a good run. It was a fun dream, but I think it's probably about time to make that concession speech. Is that what's going on here? Thank God the answer is no. The answer is no. Something else is going on here. And in the next few moments, I'd like to just banish that thought from your minds now that I've introduced it to you. Let me just banish it from your minds and lead us in the direction of who Jesus really is. He is sovereign and merciful, the King and Savior of the world. See, rather than point to failure, this journey into Jerusalem, it shows Jesus to be absolutely sovereign and at the same time incredibly merciful. Let's take a closer look. First, Jesus is unlike any other human being in that circumstances, they don't control him. He controls them. We see Jesus' sovereignty in his ability to control. Jesus was drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany. He sends out the, these disciples on an errand. And because he knows everything, he knows that there's going to be a mother donkey and her colt there. And he says, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and, with, and a colt with her. So he tells both of these men to get it. But not only does he know that the donkey is going to be there, he knows that they are, going to be, they are going to be questioned. And he gives them exactly the right words to say. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
Jesus knows that, that, that the owners are just going to say, yeah, take them. That's incredible. He knows exactly what is going to happen before it does. He is in control. It's amazing. By giving this command, Jesus also knowingly sets into motion the circumstances which would lead to the completion of his mission. In effect, he initiates his coronation as the king he was made, he was meant to be. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus knew that there was a right time that things should happen. In John 2.4, Jesus said to his mother, My hour has not come. In 7.6, he says to his brothers, My time has not yet come. In 7.30, he says, no one, it says, no one lays a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In 8.20, they don't arrest Jesus because his hour had not yet come. But John records, right after entering Jerusalem, Jesus says this, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, Jesus' life is not a mystery to him. Not at all. He doesn't walk through life blindly like we do, not knowing what might be around the next corner, not knowing what's going to happen to us. Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew when it would come. And not only did Jesus know what and he knew when, but he was in control of the events that would take place when this time came. John 10, verse 18. Jesus said, no one takes it, talking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see how marvelously sovereign Jesus is? Even in death, he would be in control. He lays it down. He has the authority to take it right back up. His death on the cross, it would be a completely voluntary act of selfless sacrifice for others. No one takes his life from him. Jesus is sovereign. His sovereignty is seen in his control. His sovereignty is also seen in his works. The things that he did, Luke 19.37 said, as he was drawing near, already on the way down, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works they had seen. You see, for three years, the people had an up-close and personal seat looking at what Jesus did. And the things he did, they defied physics, they defied rationale. So when they see him riding on this donkey, they're able to put two and two together And they just begin praising God. They may have remembered, this is the man who healed the blind. This is the man who caused the lame to walk. He's the one who made the deaf to hear. His healing touch cleansed lepers. His voice had calmed the storms. It cast out demons. We saw this. His body, it, it walked upon water. In a prayer of thanksgiving to heaven, 
transformed a few loaves of bread and a handful of fish into enough food to satisfy thousands. There's no question that Jesus was powerful and had the power to do miraculous things. If he desired, he could have overthrown the Roman rule right then and there with a snap of his fingers. He could have opened the eyes to the masses to see his glory and fall down at his feet and worship him without any effort. Jesus' sovereignty, his sovereignty is seen in his control, it's seen in his works, it's also seen in the necessary praise of his glory. He must be praised. In Luke 19.39, some of the Pharisees interrupt the celebration. They need to confront Jesus. Jesus, we have a bone to pick with you. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Not in so many words, they were saying, Jesus, You know why these people are saying these things about you. You need to make them stop right now because this, you and I, we both know this is not true. You don't want to be guilty of allowing them to think that you could actually be the one that God has sent, that anointed one, that Messiah. You don't want to be guilty of that, Jesus. You make them stop right now. And to that, Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these people don't praise me for who I am, then these immobile, lifeless, voiceless stones are going to be forced to do it. He's sovereign. He's the one who created all things. And he is the one for whom all things have been created. We made mention of that last week in Colossians. He doesn't need human beings to recognize his glory. And in fact, if we don't rise to the occasion and embrace and accept that privilege for praising him for who he is, then the rest of creation will do it. Just like Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Jesus is sovereign. You see it in his control, his works, and the necessary praise of his glory. The people, they were right on when they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They were exactly right because that was who he was. Only he didn't need the people to declare that. He didn't need the people to recognize his kingship, his messiahship. No, the Lord, God appointed him to do that, for that. Isaiah prophesied about it in 9-7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We read this at around Christmas time. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who's going to do this? How is this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, Jesus isn't a king by the will of the people. He's a king because of the will of God. And unlike any earthly king, he's a king without borders, without limitations. There are no opposing powers that keep him in check. There's no time restrictions. There's no limits on his resources and no comparison to the radiant beauty of his glory. 
the people, they may have been wading through a kind of fog. They may have been somewhat confused, thinking, we've seen Jesus do incredible things, so there must be something special about him. But you know, he's not doing the things that we think the Savior who was promised would be doing, and so he can't be the one who was promised. He can't be the one that we've waited for. But you and I are standing on the other side. We're standing on the other side of these events, and we're looking back on them, and from our vantage point, it's clear Jesus is the sovereign king. You know, the events that took place on Palm Sunday, they weren't evidence of failure. No. If Jesus had come to deliver the people from Roman rule, then that would probably be a different story. But Jesus had come to deliver us from something far more sinister. We talked about that last week. Something far more dangerous, far more destructive than the tyranny of just another foreign power. He came to deliver from the grip of our own sin and the imminent and ferocious punishment that would be coming from a holy God. Not long before Jesus told his 12 disciples, Luke 18, 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day he will rise. It says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So the crowds, the religious leaders, not even the disciples were clearly understanding here. They sang the songs. They were going through the motions, ripping the branches off, throwing them down. They were doing all of the right things. Jesus knew what was coming, but they didn't. They didn't know Jesus for who he really was. The betrayal, the mocking, the spitting, the flogging, the brutal, murderous end, Jesus knew all of that was necessary. All of that was coming. In the midst of what so many others would see as failure, his sovereignty, it remained untouched. Everyone else would have looked at Jesus and said, well, that's the end of that. Boy, these disciples look stupid now. No, no, no. His sovereignty was untouched because he was in control of everything that was about to happen. Jesus is sovereign. But you know he's also merciful? We actually see that in this passage. The crowds, they were looking for conquest, and yet Jesus was on a mission of mercy. It says in Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. This was a rescue mission. This was a sacred act of selfless, sacrificial love that would result in our salvation. Where do we see Jesus' mercy put on display here in Luke 19? We see it. We see it in his tears. In his tears. As Jesus nears the city, verse 41 says he wept over it. Why does he weep? 
Why is he crying? We just said Jesus is in control here. It doesn't sound like something that a person in control does. You look at someone crying and you're thinking, their life is spinning out of control. Their life must be a real mess. Man, I'd love to hear what's going on with them. But Jesus' sovereignty and his mercy, they go hand in hand. Jesus weeps, and we see another aspect of his character. He's not in, he, yes, he's in control. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's strong. Yes, he's going to get the necessary praise that's due to him. And yes, he knows that everything is and is, going, uh, and is going to go exactly according to plan. And yet, in the midst of that, he's filled with this overwhelming sorrow for the suffering of others. Jesus weeps because he cares. Shouldn't a sovereign king be unmoved? Shouldn't a sovereign king be cold and unfeeling? Well, a selfish one is. A narcissist only cares about himself, but that's not Jesus. That's not how he exercises his sovereignty. In fact, the whole reason he came to earth to begin with was because of God's great love to save the world. Jesus is far superior than any earthly king because not only is his power perfect, but also his compassion is absolutely perfect. Luke 19, 41, 42 say that Jesus, he wept over the city saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Even in the midst of this great celebration, praise for the Son of David, Jesus' mercy is put on display as he weeps for these people who just don't get it. They're still blinded by this thick fog. They're celebrating the arrival of the one they think will bring him peace, and yet they have no idea how that peace needs to be brought about. Jesus weeps. Does your heart break for those around you who are suffering or who are lost in a fog. Those who go through life experiencing pain and heartbreak without knowing the hope and the peace that are only found in Jesus Christ, does your heart break for them? If it doesn't, pay attention to Jesus, the sovereign king, the one who had it all together and yet wept, Move to the point of tears for the suffering of people, people who are perishing. One pastor put it very bluntly. He said this, If you haven't shed any tears for somebody's losses but your own, it probably means you're pretty wrapped up in yourself. Our prayer needs to be that God would soften our hearts so that they might be moved by the suffering of others. Jesus, his mercy, seen in his tears, also seen in his self-denial. Where he pointed out, Jesus knows what's coming. He knew what would happen in the next few days. The Son of Man will be delivered up. They will kill him, he said. Suffering was not something that he looked forward to with excitement. We know that because he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The, the days that would, would be ahead, 
They would be brutal. And yet he would willingly endure it for the long-term joy that he was going to receive. Ultimate act of self-denial here. Jesus would put on display great mercy for humanity by laying down his life to pay for sin. 1 John 3.16, by this we know, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You want to know what love is? Well, you look right here in 1 John 3.16. Jesus raises the bar. He says, this is what love looks like. It's pure. It's spotless. Laying down my infinitely valuable life for the good of others. Do you want to be like Jesus? Following Jesus means willingly laying down your pleasure, your comfort, your security for the sake of others. We don't just feel sorry for others. Our tears, like those of Jesus, they need to be shed as we move to meet need. We don't just feel, we do, even when it means great cost to ourselves. Where's the, where is the merciful self-denial of Jesus being put on display in your life, in my life? How are we laying down our lives for our friends, for our neighbors, for our family, for our co-workers? How are we showing the love of Christ in our homes? I mean, do we put on a good show when we come onto this campus, strut around, and then the moment we're in our cars going home, we see a different face being put on? The fog was thick that day. The people were praising God. They were celebrating Jesus at one moment. Then they weren't so sure of who he was the next. They wanted peace. They had no idea how that peace was going to come. They had no idea that their chance of praise would very soon turn to cries for crucifixion. And they had no idea that that was exactly the way that God had planned it. And yet we're on the other side of this crucial most critical, climactic week in human history. Let's make sure that we don't fall into a similar confusion, fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus is anything other than what he really is, who he really is. Because to do so would be to tragically consider him to be something far less glorious than who he really is. You see, it's possible to say the words, to sing the songs, to pray the prayers, to go through all the right motions and not know the Savior. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? To know the Savior is to know Him as the sovereign King who mercifully humbled Himself to provide not what we think that we need, but what we most greatly need to be forgiven our sin, to be made right with God. Let's move from confusion to clarity and be amazed by Jesus this week. Let's recognize and admire him, worship him for who he really is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler over all, the one who created everything and the one for whom everything was created for and the one whose mercy was put on display through tears 
that he shed as he rode to meet our greatest need. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so not deserving of who you are. Sometimes when we think of Jesus, we think of someone who was very weak. Someone who was extremely passive. Someone who just went around kissing babies and doing good things for people, Lord. But Jesus was the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. He was powerful even in the moments where he suffered greatly on our behalf, Lord. He was sovereign. Thank you, Lord, for that realization. Thank you that our God is powerful. Thank you that there is no moment where he is not in control. And thank you, Lord, that he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. What a joy, what a privilege it is to celebrate Jesus Christ this week, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to do so with clarity. Would you open our eyes to an even greater understanding of who he is and who we are in light of who he is. And, Lord, would that just lead us to be absolutely blown away at your matchless grace, your love and kindness toward us. And God, as we are impacted by that, may we draw near to you, be bathed in your love, and then share that with others. Lord, I pray that you would lead us into situations and conversations where we would have opportunity to tell others of the greatness of our King. We love you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. In Christ's name, amen.